you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you could uh, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you. You can take it home. You could start reading it. That would be really, really good. Uh, if you could turn to chapter 15, verse 22, I'm going to read this section of Scripture. Uh, you know, as a church this year, we're exploring what it looks like to cultivate intimacy with God. Like our, even the first set of music, you guys just, I felt like, wait, I just need to be quiet and this, the church wants to sing tonight. Like that, our heart, uh, our heart for this year is that we would be like desperate for, for intimacy with God. Like we want to know God. We want to be in union with God. And we have a lot of fun things coming out in this fall for that exploration. But a part of this, starting this year, was studying Exodus in a series that we're calling Deliverance, because the whole point of Exodus is that God would literally live with his people. And for that to happen, he has to free them from their enslavements first. And so that's why we're studying this book. So uh, th this is such a dramatic book, and I, uh, I, I want to read this narrative to you. It's fairly long. I just want to read it because I love the narrative so much, and I love butchering all the words in this thing in public. So I'm just going to read it. Um, I'm going to start at verse 22. I'm going to read to the end of chapter 16, and then I'll pray, and we'll get into uh, the teaching portion. So, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. If you remember, all the things that happened in the Red Sea, Exodus and Red Sea, um, that was last week. And they went into the uh, desert of Shur. Shur? Shur. Three days they traveled in the desert without finding water, and they came to Marah. They could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. Marah means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it in the water, and the water became fit to drink. And the Lord issued a ruling, an instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then he came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, and after they came out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if we only had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate food all the food we wanted, but you brought us out here in the desert to starve this entire community to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down, and you're kind of wondering what he's going to rain down at this point, right? You're like, oh, this is not going to be good. I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather just enough for that day, and this way I will test them to see whether they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the Israelite community, come before me, the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was a, the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, twilight, you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. 
that evening quail came and covered the entire camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared in the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's bread. The Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by Omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots, and it began to smell. And so Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two Omers for each person, And the elders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it till morning. So they saved till morning as Moses commanded. It did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is Sabbath to the Lord and you will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any Nevertheless, some people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people called the bread manna. Manna means in Hebrew, like, what is it? It was like white coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put the omer of manna in it and then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets and the covenant law. It was that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to the land that, that was settled. They ate manna that tasted like honey until they reached the border of Canaan, the land of honey. Let's pray. Lord, I love, uh, I love this narrative. I love your word. I love how you deal with your people. I love your patience that's shown here. I love how you get... Um, frustrated at times when they don't obey you, when it's so simple, and I feel like an idiot sometimes I do the same thing over and over and over again. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd learn from this tonight. I pray they wouldn't just, this wouldn't just be like a Bible story that many of us learned in Sunday school, or maybe we're hearing for the first time that's hidden in the very early beginning of our Bible on thin pages in black and white. I pray to become alive to us because your word is living. It's alive, Lord. And so, Would you make it alive to our hearts and apply it to our hearts? Would you do what you often do and that you take the the scriptures and you make them come alive to us in ways that change us and move us towards you? Do it again, Lord. I submit my capacities to you and ask that you would give us um, your your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, tonight, I want to talk about the struggle to get your life together. All the different disciplines have ways of speaking about this struggle. 
And we all go through it. Every single person goes through the struggle to get our lives together. For example, in the human, science, in the human sciences, they use the language of developmental psychology. And that's the part, and they say this is the part of your life when you leave the home that you grew up in to go out into the world to make a home of your own. That space in the middle where you leave your home to go and make a home of your own, a life of your own, takes years and years and years of your life, and it's filled with struggle. Psychologists say it begins around puberty, that time when you don't think your parents are cool anymore, and all these hormones inside of you actually cause you to push away from your home and eventually to go out into the world. This is, this is the way it's supposed to work anyway. And the struggle here in this season of life is real. It's a struggle to find your own identity. It's a struggle to find fulfillment, to find peace. And this struggle sends us out into the world, typically somewhere around college age, restless, sexually driven, full of grandiose dreams, but also confused and insecure. I meet a lot of you in this town, in this stage of your life, because it continues sometimes until your mid to late 30s, this stage of your life. And it typically peaks when you're in year two of what you thought was your dream job in San Francisco. <laughs> and you know this struggle. I know this, our church is filled with people in this struggle. And the struggle is really a search for a new home, one that you've built for yourselves. Ronald Rolheiser, one of my favorite writers, says it like this. He says, this time, this is a time of much longing and searching, searching for an identity, searching for acceptance, searching for a circle of friends, searching for intimacy, searching for someone to marry, searching for a vocation, searching for a career, searching for the right place to live, searching for financial security, and searching for something to give us substance and meaning. In a word, searching for a home. And the struggle to get your life together is what existentialists call alienation. It's this feeling of being detached from the world estranged from people and society, even the universe. In essence, it's a feeling, the experience of not being at home in the world. Like this thing happens somewhere around puberty where it sends us out in the world and we don't feel at home in the world anymore. The New Testament has language around this as well. The New Testament calls this struggle discipleship. It's when we make the move from one home to another home. We're not, and we're not fully home yet. We, we struggle to align our lives during the season of our lives to the teachings and the life of Christ. It's this moment where it's that point and period of time where you become a Christian and, and you're at home in Christ, but you're not fully home yet. And it's just all this space in the middle of you growing and becoming more and more like Christ. New Testament says that for the Christian, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness, this one home that we used to have, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. It's like literally a change of zip code. You, you used to live under the domain of darkness, and that was your home for a while, and then that's not your home anymore, and you've moved to a new domain, the domain of the kingdom of the son of God. And for a Christian, we have placed our faith in Christ. We have redemption, and we have transferred from one home, darkness, to another, the kingdom of the Son. And that, and that transference happens in a moment. In a moment, we're changed. In a dramatic moment, we're changed. Many of you have even, even experienced, when you've come to faith in Christ, peace like a river flooding your heart and your mind. Maybe it was euphoric. Maybe it was uh, more of a matter-of-fact thing, like, I'm a Christian now. Either way... The struggle at that moment begins when you realize you're saved 
and you're redeemed, and you're forgiven, and you're free, but you're not. At the same time, you're also moving towards greater freedom. You're free, but you're moving towards greater freedom. Another way of saying this is that you're moving towards your true home. You're home in Christ, but you're actually moving towards your true home. The New Testament has language that calls uh, followers of Jesus sojourners or pilgrims, that we're moving through this life toward our true home. And that in between your first home, darkness, and your new home, light, is the struggle to get your life together. It's a struggle to know what it means to, to what it means as a Christian that you have a new identity in Christ. And I meet a lot of you that are that that is the struggle for you as a Christian. How do I find my identity in Christ and not the things that I do? And not the things that I accomplish, and not the way that I look, and not the way that I act on social media. Like, how do I find it in Christ? It's the struggle to know what it means to trust Christ with your future. It's that struggle that, that you take everything that the world says has value, and now all of that has to be brought under the lordship of Christ. And you're struggling to find your true value as a child of God. That's a struggle. It's a struggle to be reparented into the family of God, where God is, where God is father, and not like the dad you had growing up, no matter how amazing that dad was. Happy Father's Day, by the way. But reparented in the family of God with God, the true father as the father. It's a struggle to take all the energies inside us, the sexual energy, the anxious energy, the hopeful energy, the hopeless energy, and then to submit all those energies, energies to God and allow Him to channel them. That's the struggle. This is the struggle to get your life together. Now, I say all this because the book of Exodus has language its own to describe this struggle. And Israel has no other story that lays out the struggle so clearly than the text before us. In the language of Exodus, the struggle is called the wilderness. That struggle is called the wilderness. And the wilderness is this radical in-between place. Israel is no longer slaves in Egypt. Their home for the past 400 years, they left it. God has dramatically delivered them. However, they're not home yet. They're making their way toward the land that flows with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. Now, to get from Egypt to Canaan, to get from bondage to well-being, to get from like darkness to light, to get from immaturity to maturity, to get from the place of constant anxiety to the place of true shalom, they have to go through a wilderness. Are you with me? Do you see what I'm saying here? They were at one place, and they're moving to another place, but they're not at that other place yet. And to get to that other place, they have to go through a wilderness. And the wilderness, therefore, becomes a metaphor for all those parts of life that are not ordered, that are dry, that are weary, places with no reliable life support systems anymore, where old things that we trusted in are no longer available to us, and we have to learn a whole new way of being and a whole new way of relating and a whole new way of living. And therefore, the wilderness struggle is the place God matures us. The wilderness, where you feel like life is dry and weary and you're wandering. Whether that's a season of life you're in, whether that's a struggle to get your life together financially or finding or settling down with someone you love or finding your place in the city or finding should I live here in the city long term, that struggle, that is the place where God matures us. And it's always this way. 
See, the struggle to get our lives together in the harsh seasons of our lives is the conspiracy of God. God conspires with those seasons to teach us. Now, how does God conspire with the wilderness to teach us? How does God conspire with our wildernesses to shape us? Let's see a few things from our text. First, in the wilderness, God heals. In the wilderness, God heals. It's three days after the Red Sea rescue, and Israel is walking in the wilderness, the the desert. The desert and the wilderness are synonymous. That's what it means. When the Bible talks about the wilderness, it's saying the desert. And as you can imagine, it's hot in the desert. All the water that you brought from Egypt in your cool little fancy water bottles are drained. It's gone. And so they're thirsty. And here's the thing about water in the desert. You can't make water. You can't manufacture water. You can't invent water. You can't hack water. There's not water hacks like in the desert. There's none of that for them. Water can only be given and received. And water is life. Water is required for life in the wilderness. So at this point, Israel is vulnerable and completely dependent and at, at, at this point in the wilderness. And they finally come up to some water. They're, they're all walking, thousands and thousands of them, and they're walking, and they finally come up to some water, and they go to drink, and probably someone runs ahead and grabs the water and splashes on their face, and the water is bitter. It's undrinkable. And what do they do? They start to grumble. They start to grumble. And by the way, this theme of grumbling begins here in the wilderness and actually traces through the entire Bible to where when you get to the book of Hebrews and the book of 1 Corinthians, it points back to Israel's grumbling in the wilderness to teach us. And we'll talk about that at the end of our series. But they grumble, and this is the theme here. And the word for grumble here is a low-grade murmur of negativity. Does anyone know what that is? It's a low-grade murmur of negativity. It's cynicism. It's 90% of Twitter. It's the, feeling, it's the feeling you get when you don't trust anyone anymore, when you don't trust your friends, when you don't trust your community, your church, your boss, your new company, your government, reliable news sources. You just don't trust anyone, and you're a cynic. You grumble. You have this low-grade murmur of negativity. Everything's bad, and we've all been there. And what does God do to their grumbling? God hears their grumbling. God listens. And he has Moses throw, make wa- the water sweet by throwing a piece of wood into it. Um, I kind of think it's like a big giant piece of charcoal, maybe this clean the, clean the water up. But I, th- I think it has spiritually more to do with the staff he uses and the wood. Anyway, everyone drinks up and everyone's happy. Okay, so. But then God says something. It's a teaching moment for God. He capitalizes on this teaching moment, and he speaks in the life of the people, and he says, don't, don't forget this lesson. Look what he says in verse 26. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought to the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, here's the thing. Amen. Here's the thing. This is the first time this characteristic This purpose of God is introduced in the Bible. I am the God who heals. This is, if you're familiar with the New Testament at all or the teachings of Jesus at all, you know that healing, emotional healing and spiritual healing and physical healing and psychological healing are like a huge part of the ministry of Jesus. 
And what you might not know is that theme of God as healer is first introduced into the language of the Bible right here. And notice the context. It's in the wilderness that God heals. See, for God, the wilderness is not a place of death for you. The wilderness is not, the intention of the wilderness is not that God would kill you or dry you out or destroy you. The intention of God in the wilderness, any wildernesses that we go through, is the place where he heals you. That is the whole intention. I've been through several wildernesses in my, I'm almost 40, I'll be 40 at the end of the year. Um, Yeah, thank you. I haven't mourned it yet, so just calm down. The wilderness is where God heals you. The, the wilderness is a place where God reconstructs reality for you. It's, it's where he teaches you that freedom is not about independence, but it's actually about deeper dependence upon God. Because we think that wilderness, like freedom is about independence. Freedom is like, I'm free. I'm, I'm free to do what I want. I'm, I'm, I'm independent. I'm not dependent on anyone. I just trust in myself. And God's like, no, no, no. Freedom is not about independence. It's about deeper dependence. See, what makes the wilderness experience a wilderness experience is, is when everything we once depended upon evaporates. The things we look to as a hope and safety get removed or they get threatened. Like financial security goes away and we enter into a wilderness. Even maybe some of the spiritual gifts that we once had are not like as potent anymore and we enter into a wilderness. We, we, we believe that we're an amazing parent and then uh, one of our kids start to rebel and then we, we're driven into a wilderness, maybe not as great as I thought. Our beauty begins to fade. Our competence is tested by doing something we've never done before, and we think we're totally incompetent, and we get thrust into a wilderness. And it's in the seasons of the wilderness that the cliche cliche is made true, that you don't know God is all you need until God is all you've got. That's a cliche. I know it's a cliche. I know it is. But it's made true in the wilderness because everything else gets stripped away and you have nothing but God. And at that moment that you have nothing but God, you realize that God is all you need. Like this whole time, I was trusting in this and this and this and all I needed was God. Why didn't you tell me God? And God's like, that's what I'm kind of trying to show you. That's I'm all that you need. In the wilderness, God was all Israel had. And that's all Israel needed. And God will use a season like this to teach them that he is all they need and that he can be trusted and that he is not like Pharaoh, that he is not like the fathers of Egypt or the gods of Egypt. And God calls this whole work in the wilderness of of undoing their lives to redo their lives in the wilderness. He calls that healing. Like, I'm here to heal you. God is saying to Israel, I am healing you. The rulers of your past were harsh and they wanted to destroy you and you think I'm the same way. You think I'm harsh and I want to destroy you. So when you don't get what you want, when you want, you're triggered and you murmur and you complain and you get angry. But I want to teach you through a process of obedience to trust me and have the eyes of faith. I am healing you. And you should count it a great privilege when you go through wildernesses. When you go through seasons of life where it feels like everything is falling apart, it's in those very seasons that God begins to heal us, to rewire reality for us, to show us that he can be trusted, to show us that he is all that we, that we need. And for this to happen, Israel has to get involved. 
See, Israel cannot be healed of the pathology of Egypt if they continue to collude with the old system. And the only way to stop the collusion with Egypt, says God, is to commit to a different pattern of obedience that is rooted in a different vision. God's saying, you have to trust me now. And you have to trust in my care for you. You have to obey my word. I'm going to say certain things. I'm about to lead you and test you. And I'm about to give you certain commands. And you have to trust me. I know what I'm doing. And this is a long, long process. And so in the wilderness, we also learn this. In the wilderness, we learn that God, God feeds. In the wilderness, God feeds. In chapter 16, there are about two months into their journey in the wilderness. And then they start grumbling again. Why? Because there's no meat. Look at verse 3. The Israelites said to them, oh, this is such a funny verse. If we only had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. You know what? Remember Egypt, guys? Okay, we know Egypt. By the way, um, this is me talking. We, we just read what happened in Egypt. Okay, so we remember it. Listen to how they talk about it now. They're just two months out. Oh, Egypt. Remember when we sat around pots of meat all day long? It was Chipotle all day, every day in Egypt. Remember that? And we ate all the food we wanted in Egypt. Is that true? No. They were slaves in Egypt. They were broken and oppressed and beaten and given only a small rations of food if they'd met their quota. And if they didn't meet their quota, they didn't get their food. Listen how they're, they're thinking about Egypt. Oh, it was amazing. We sat around pots. I remember these giant pots of meat, and we would just stick our forks in these pots, and we would just eat meat all day. All, we would do nothing but eat meat and lay it in the sun. That's all we did. But you, God, you brought us in the desert to starve to death. First of all, this is the language of addiction. They are still addicted to Egypt. They allow the present anxiety to distort the memory of their recent past. They look back and they romanticize Egypt. Have you ever romanticized a, a destructive relationship before? Have you ever romanticized destructive behavior before? Have you ever romanticized like the worst, the worst thing that you got caught up into, but somehow two months out of it, you're like, but back then, oh, it was so good. This, this place of deep abuse and oppression, they look back and all they can remember are pots of meat. I don't even think there were pots of meat. But they just they make it up. They're like, pots of meat? And I think that was like a campaign that like trended on the camps. Hashtag pot, I don't know. That could be a thing. See, this is the thing. You can get out of Egypt quickly. You can even get out of Egypt quite dramatically. But you can't get out of Egypt, you can't get Egypt out of you except by a process. And so there, a moment happens, bam, a moment happens and they're out of Egypt, God delivers them and they, they're out of Egypt dramatically, but Egypt won't get out of them except through a process. By the way, this process is called the wilderness. And this is true of any addiction, any bondage, any disorder. You can be saved in a moment, you can be freed in a moment, you can begin recovery in a day, but it's a process to get that bondage out of you. If you come to faith in Christ tonight, you will receive forgiveness in a moment, in peace in a moment, but you will probably go to work talking about the same things you talked about on Friday. And it will be a process, a process of God changing you. You will probably look at relationships a little bit different, but not completely different. 
and it's a process for God to change you. And that process is often called the wilderness. How did Israel get in the wilderness? Remember, God led them there. So what does God do when they begin to murmur? Well, he feeds them. But he feeds them with a test. Look at verse 4. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This is, this is, and this way I will test them. So I'm going I'm to give them bread. They're going to go out. And if they follow my instructions, I'm going to test them. And to see if they're following my instructions. We, we grow up, all of us, we grow up with all kinds of, taking all kinds of tests, right? Uh, you take a driver's license test, and if you fail, you don't get to drive. Thank goodness. Um, we go through school, and we take, we take tests in school, and if we fail, we don't get to advance. Uh, college, if we fail at tests, we don't get in. I, once I, I failed a personality test, true story. <laughs> I don't even know how you fail, ter, fail a personality test, but I had to take one. I had to take one for work. Actually, I had to take one for this work, this job that I'm doing now. And um, Tarek made me take this personality test, and somehow... I'm taking this test, and it starts to turn into math, and they're asking me math questions, and I'm pretty insecure when it comes to math, so I get angry at the test, so I answer C on all of them, and then I just finally give up and close my computer. I go, my computer crashed, and, and Tark was so mad at me. Take the test. I'm like, I'm not taking your stupid test. Anyway, <laughs> the test that God puts them through in the wilderness is a different kind of test, not a pass-fail test. The test is determined whether Israel is prepared to receive bread and life under the new terms of being his people. Are you ready to receive my bread? Are you ready to receive my life as my people? What that requires is trust. Or another word, another way of saying it that might, not, might sound more harsh, but it still is true, obedience to my word. See, the ways of receiving bread in Egypt are completely inappropriate here. God is testing them to see if Egypt is out of them yet. And the way they got bread in Egypt was by anxiety and oppression and hoarding. And the question is, can they trust God and learn a new way of getting bread? In our wildernesses, we, God tests us in similar ways. We have old ways of receiving life through pride and accomplishment and secrecy and manipulation and dishonesty and perversity even. And these are not the way you receive life in God's family. And so every day in the wilderness, God will give us a new test. Will you receive the bread of life under God's new conditions? Will you receive it through humility and honesty and transparency and hospitality and vulnerability and obedience and trust? And the conditions of bread gathering are this. Only gather enough for today. Only gather as much as you need. What is this? God is saying daily bread. I will give you daily bread. But here's the thing. You have to go get it. Listen, I, I, I heard, um, one time I heard Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, um, talk about this, this, this part of Scripture, and he said that, he's like, I, I wonder why God didn't complete the miracle. Like, if bread out in the desert floor is a miracle, why couldn't God just complete the miracle by making the bread show up in their stomachs? <laughs> I'm like, that is so genius. Yeah, why, why not? Like, why couldn't, when they woke up, they're like, I'm so hungry. Oh, never mind. God, that's awesome. Why did God not just complete the miracle? And the answer is, God saved Israel from Egypt almost passively. Like, they just, they just stood there and watched God just do all these things and destroy Egypt. And finally, they had to apply the blood, but they were saved almost passively. That like God was just going to do it. But now, as they grow in their freedom, 
they have to be active participants. God will not just make the bread show up in their stomachs. They have to go and gather, and they, help, and they have to gather according to his instructions. So they, not do they have to just gather, they have to obey. And so, so the, the point is this. In our lives in the wilderness, the wilderness journey is not like you sitting down in the chair in the matrix and getting jacked up and be like, this is spirituality, blah, download the spirituality program, like, I'm, I'm spiritual. Like that will never happen. You have to participate. You have to get up and get your daily bread. Tomorrow morning, you can't just go, mm, church yesterday, um, and then go about your day. <laughs> you have to get up and get your daily bread. It's there for you. I, I wonder how much, like, how, how much of our church is just starving because you're not getting up and getting your daily bread. So they do. They get up, but, but some refuse to trust God. Look at verse 20. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, and it was full of maggots and began to smell, and Moses was angry. Of course he's angry. Like, guys, can you listen for a minute? Egypt isn't out of them yet. See, some of them want to develop a safe zone of self-sufficiency. They, they want to do this. They want to go, well, if God doesn't show up tomorrow, then I'll have enough under my bed. If God doesn't show up tomorrow and give bread, at least I'm going to save some. But what, look what God's doing here. Think about, think about this. Who stores up food? Who stores up? And the answer is, in this narrative, Egypt. What was Israel building for Egypt as slaves? They were building storehouses for them. Look at Exodus 1 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. See, what God is saying is, no, that's not how Egypt, that's how Egypt did things. That's not how we're doing things. We're gonna, I'm gonna nurse you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to carry you on eagle's wings. I'm going to give you only daily bread, and you're going to have to look to me daily for it. But I can be depended upon, except for Sabbath, because God, like Chick-fil-A, is closed on Sabbath, right? <laughs> God's like, hey, listen, bread, is, bread shop's closed on Sabbath, so gather twice as much, rest. I rest, you rest, we all rest, rest. That's a whole different sermon. That's coming up in a couple weeks. But look what God's up to. Reflecting back on the Exodus night, when they are about to cross over to the promised land, Moses looks back on 40 years of wandering and reflects on this whole situation, this whole story. And he reflects back in the book of Deuteronomy. And when Moses reflects back, he gives us the intention of what God was doing. Check it out. Look at Deuteronomy 8, chapter 2. Chapter, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to see what was in your heart, in order to know what was in your heart. See, why was God, keep that slide up there, why was God doing this, and what was God doing in the wilderness? He was testing their hearts. He was seeing what's in their hearts, and you know what God found over and over and over and over again in their hearts? Egypt. See, the struggle to get our lives together is God identifying those things in our hearts that might have carried us to where we are now, but for the journey ahead won't carry us any further. And so God says we have to rid you of those things. The wilderness is a purifying thing. It's a refining thing. God's like, okay, that kind of behavior carries you to this point, but you're about to enter into the promised land. You're about to move into my... In, into liberation, that won't do anymore. 
over and over and over again, God tested them to see what was in their hearts. And we know what came up almost every time was Egypt. And so God did more work and more work and more work. And so it says in verse 3, he, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding with manna. See what God is doing there? This is kind. God is like, I, I, I'm causing you to be hungry and then I'm feeding you. I'm teaching you that I, you can trust me to feed you which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man or woman does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is Moses saying, you know what God was really teaching you? He, it wasn't about the bread. It wasn't about the manna. It was about you living off of God's word. It was you living off of God's commands. It was you knowing that God could nurse you. And so when God said, gather this much, you gathered that much. When God said, don't gather, you didn't gather. When God said this, you did it. God was teaching you to obey his word. See, ultimately, we have to learn that we cannot live off bread alone. We can't live off our money, our accomplishments, our intelligence, our beauty. No matter if God has blessed us with them or not, they are not the real thing. The real thing is God and His Word, and we have to learn. We have to learn to live on His Word. So how long does God test them? And the answer is 40 years. What kind of God gives a test every day for 40 years, even if they fail. This is not about pass or fail. This is about God reteaching them. This is about God training them. And it's almost as if every single morning when Israel wakes up, God's mercies are new that morning. And this is what God really teaches us in the wilderness. God teaches us dependence upon Him and trust in Him. After Jesus' baptism, the Spirit sent him to the wilderness. Said, and by the Spirit, Jesus was driven into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Read 40 years, 40 days. You guys get it? And it says, and he was hungry, and Satan came to test him, defeat him. But Jesus defeated Satan through the Word of God, through obedience to God's world, Word. And this is what God wants to do in the wilderness. This is what God wants to do in our wilderness. He wants us, through the power of Christ, to have victory, to learn obedience, to learn that we do not live. By the way, Jesus quoted this to Satan. Oh, man does not live off bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, the desert for Israel turned into a place of worship. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10, uh, chapter, uh, verse Chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Come before the Lord. Moses invites Israel. That word in Hebrew is draw near. That word in Hebrew means to gather to worship. Israel was invited to gather and worship. And as they gather and worship, look at verse 10, while Aaron was speaking to the Holy Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. This is what happens in the wilderness for us. When we draw near to God in the wilderness, they turn away from Egypt, and they turn toward the wilderness, and they look toward the desert, and you're expecting when you look in the desert to see emptiness and a deathly place, hollow, hot, destructive, but what they look and what they see is the very center of God's presence. 
look, look towards the desert. Look away from Egypt, look towards the desert, and what do you see? It's not hot and deathly and deserted. The place is the actual very center of God's glory. In, in worship, the wilderness is c- completely defined. They gather and they draw near to worship, and the wilderness is redefined. It's a place where God is. It's a place where God's going to actively feed them. It's a place where God's going to minister to them. And this is our wilderness. When you and I are in the struggle to get our lives together, I think God is conspiring. God is right there in the very center. And in that, he's conspiring with all the things. I don't think he causes all of them. I think he uses all all the wildernesses that we go into. And if we worship like we will, that wilderness that we're in is completely redefined and we see God in the midst of it. Lord, I pray that as we turn now to respond to you, I know that, gosh, our church is full of these sort of of people that are right here in this place. And I ask that you would minister to them. Wherever they're at tonight in their loneliness and their despair and their hopelessness, even in their grumbling, Lord, Even if they have this low-grade murmur of negativity as they walk in this room, would you meet them there? I pray that you change them, that you would meet their needs, that you would feed them by your word, that you would feed them manna, quail, sweet water, those sort of things spiritually. Do that to us, God, in us, for us, through us as we seek you and worship you. And I pray tonight that the place that we're at right now would be completely redefined by your presence, by your nearness, by the cloud of your presence. May it redefine our realities right now. And teach us, Lord, I I just, I pray, be a good shepherd to us, be a good pastor to us, teach us and train us for those bonehead things that we keep doing over and over and over again and never learning. For those of us that have hard hearts that are so, so dense and we can't seem to learn Be patient with us tonight. By your grace, soften our hearts. By your grace, show us the way forward. Meet us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.